You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with a Gun Show. This is episode 411. On this week's episode, I have a really good conversation with a guy from Georgia. Mark James is my featured speaker. And we're going to talk about some history with a guy by the name of Isham Dart, a black cowboy. Also, I got a recommendation for an NRA board member, some news, and some plugs for other people's podcasts. All this and a little bit more sponsored by you and Crossbreed Holsters. Wait for it. Wait for it. Boom, 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 boom. This is the Black Man with the Gun Show. The Pro-Gun Podcast. And I'm your host, Ken Blanchard. Well, all right. It's another fine, field, factual, and low-fan episode of your favorite righteous podcast, The Black Man with the Gun Show. After John Wayne leads us in a Pledge of Allegiance, we're going to start off with a conversation with a guy who just impressed me to death. Really good brother. Mark James is next. And then, episode 411, where if you're not careful, you might actually learn something. I just like you so much. I do. Thank you for hitting me back on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Yeah, you make a, make a day go better. Thank you so much for the emails. Thank you so much for the calls. Ah, uh, it's a good day. It's going to be a great week. You stay warm. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And now, our featured presentation. Mark James, welcome to the Black Man with a Gun Show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, Ken. Man, I met you online, and you have not... St- Cease to amaze me, and uh, I'm so glad to have made your acquaintance. And then take a look at all the stuff that you've done, uh, Panther Protection Services, um, your career, and in, in many things. And you're just a together brother, man. I'm just happy to connect with you here on the show. Hey, man, I just try to, I just try to, do, try, try, try to do a little bit. Like the old saying says, to whom, to whom much is given, much is required. And that's just kind of the way I kind of look at things. You know, some of us have been blessed with some great opportunities and where we can share the love, share the knowledge. I think it kind of helps bless other people. Were you in the canine corps in the army? Uh, nope. Nope. Actually, I, actually, I never served. Actually, I never served. Well, okay. There's a, never served. a canine on your Facebook page. I was kind of just laughing at that. So got to... uh, yeah, I, I do have a, a, a well-trained, well-trained canine. His name is Maximus. I think, he should oh, have his own dog. Facebook. I, th- I think he should have his own Facebook page because I think he has his own his own Facebook following. Oh, that's cool. No, but actually, I, you know, I, I, I grew up with dogs. I grew up with Dobermans. Uh, a buddy of mine imports and trains Malinois, and he kind of got me into Malinois a few years ago. I do protective services for a living, so one of the things I thought was beneficial was to have a dog that. If I had a high-profile client that was doing an event, we wanted to make sure that an event could stay drug-free. I'd have an opportunity. I could I could utilize the dog in my business 
to, I could have people walk past the dog, a dog that's a positive alert, I can ask them if they have anything they wouldn't want the police to find, would they please take it back to their vehicle? As opposed to if I hire a canine officer to do that same job, a dog gets a positive alert, somebody has to go to jail. So, Wise, man. That's good. So I, I, good I think that there's right ways that, that you can still value your client's friends while not putting people at risk and say, I can't tell you what to do in your life, but I can tell you what you can't do on my client's property. Smart stuff right there. I like that. You do training too. You're author of a, of a, about three books, I think. You got maybe some more, right? Uh, actually, I probably have about nine publications that I've um, that I that, that that I've written. But yeah, I write a little bit, do a little training. Like so I I own a full service protection agency, so we do protective services. We teach you know firearms and combatives. You know, I do I try to do a lot from a, from a women's protection standpoint. Being blessed to have a phenomenal daughter, who you know, I, who I, I knock on wood, you know, had a uneventful life when it comes to, you know, predators, challenges, sexual assaults, things of that nature. But I know that one in five young ladies will be sexually assaulted in college. So I try to find ways to teach them life skills that can help keep them safe beyond um, beyond firearms. So enhancing situational awareness, teaching them some defensive tactics that can get them out of troubling situations if, if they might occur. Nice, nice. Do you, do you come across use of force training in what you do? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Come, I actually, I actually train a lot of bodyguards on use of force. I train them on defensive tactics. I train them on firearms. I train a lot of civilians. I also train a lot of law enforcement officers. Also, so I have a pretty good understanding on use of force. I look at situations and I try to say, what can I learn from these situations? As you know, we've had a lot of high-profile situations in the news as of late, which I think continues to put strains between law enforcement and the community. And I think we got to find ways to, to bridge that gap and to get the community and law enforcement back on the same page. Yeah. Cause a divided nation can never, can never win. We can't succeed as a, as a country like that. We're going backwards. If we split ourselves up on race, on color, on the thin blue line on, on whatever. And, uh, I think I think the biggest challenge manifests itself when it comes to situations of deadly force or perceived deadly force is we have to learn to get people to separate the concept of fear from the concept of danger. You know, fear is basically emotional anxiety, and danger is based on some real actions that the other person might be taking that are now putting you at risk. And too often you hear people say, I was in fear of my life. Well, what did the person do? Just because you're walking down the street and another person's approaching you and it's late at night, it doesn't mean that you're in danger. Because you're fearful, that's a personal decision. That's your own personal anxiety. But did the person threaten you? Did they call you out of your name? Did they reach for something? Did they say, I'm going to attack you, man or woman, when I approach you? Were you walking across the street? Did you cross the street? Did three people now cross over behind you? When you turned down the alley, did three more people turn down behind you? So we have to learn to get people to separate fear from danger because fear is getting people killed when sometimes it may or may not have been justified as actual danger. Man, that just brings hit to that, that little kid that was killed. Yeah, when you... You know, I, when I look at that situation, you know, in, 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 in Cleveland, when you talk about, you know, Tamar Rice, a little 12-year-old, 
kid that was killed in the park. And that, to me, was a, you know, w- w- was a tragedy. And I don't think the officers woke up in the morning and said, let's go shoot a kid. And I think most use of force, deadly force situations don't manifest themselves and great officers saying we want to harm somebody when we put on, when we put on our duty belt. I think what happens is sometimes you see officers who put themselves in tactically disadvantaged situations and then they're forced to recover. Because when I look at the Tamar Rice situation, here you got officers responding to a call of a suspect in a park with a gun. I'm not even going to get into the part about whether the dispatcher relayed that it's a kid who we think it could be a fake gun because an officer in a time of life situation can't denote fake from real. But what I can say is if 65% of police officers are killed inside of 10 feet, there is no way in the world I would ever pull a patrol car right next to a suspect that I have a report that potentially has a firearm. That why would I put myself at that tactical disadvantage? So when I look at a situation like that, everything else that happened after that happened because we started out at a tactical disadvantage. When the car was pulled that close to the suspect and you attempt to get out of a car, if you ask a, think about when you were a kid and when your dad was upset with you and he said, Ken, get in here right now. The higher tone his voice was, the faster pitch his voice was, the quicker you moved. And if I ask a young man, where's the gun? Show me the gun. Any of those things. And I say it very, very quickly and with a lot of authority, they're going to produce it very quickly. But as soon as the officer shot the kid, what did he do? He retreated towards the rear of the vehicle. Why? Because covers your friend, concealment's your friend, distance is your friend. All the things that anybody who is trained in firearm tactics understands. So why not start in that position before you ever approach the suspect? Why not use a PA system? Ask the gentleman to put his hands over his head, put him behind his head, interlock his fingers. Sir, get down on your knees, young man. Lay down flat. You don't approach until you get compliance. So these are situations where, once again, I don't think that officer woke up in the morning and said, I want to go shoot a 12-year-old kid. I think he found himself in a tactically disadvantaged situation. And as the kid turned or whatever was his trigger, he then found himself having to recover. And when police officers have to recover, people often get severely injured or die. So I can never tell an officer when he feels in danger for his life. But what I can ask police departments to do is to review the incidents that led up to it to say, what can we learn from this? Because how can we keep the officer from being in a tactical disadvantage, keep him safe? And if he's safe, by default, that keeps the public safer. How do we, how do we teach the public? How do we reach out to people that are not law enforcement officers? Uh, I think that starts back with the old-fashioned days of community policing. I think that the community has to see the police involved in their community and non-arrest situations and non-confrontational situations. I grew up um, in, in Florida where my next-door neighbor was a sheriff. His son and I played together. We played Little League together. We played football together. I saw him at church. I saw him at the grocery store. 
you know, the Police Benevolent Association used to actively teach little leagues, play, you know, basketball leagues. So they were intricately involved in the community. And I think that we have to get back to where police departments are connected with the communities. I think where you see the best relationships between law enforcement and communities is when the officers typically can relate to the communities that they're serving. When, when you have a police officer who sees a young man doing something wrong and he knows the kid's mother, he knows the kid's father, he can say, you know, young man, Ken, sit on that bitch and stare at it. Let me call your dad. You know, hey, hey, Ken Sr., I got your son right here. He's sitting on the bench. He's supposed to be at school. He's not at school. And you know that your dad's going to have a heat-seeking message for you when he shows up. Oh, that changes everything right there. And that, and that changes the dynamics right there because there's that connection. But when officers aren't part of the communities and they start to treat people, everybody like a suspect, and you start treating people like, com- like combatants, then all of a sudden you don't have that connection. But when you can say, Ken, as a police officer, hey, you know my grandmother because my grandmother raised you or she raised your mom, or she raised your dad, when that connection starts, so we got to start back with getting kids who want to be police officers again. Because when you're actively involved in that community, you don't see those same types of excessive force situations because you relate to the person as a person because it's somebody that you can relate to. It's no different than disciplining a kid. All love and no discipline doesn't work. All discipline and no love doesn't work. We all had had that had that cousin or two that had to run in with a law when we were growing up. And we don't, you know, have disapproval for police officers when they arrest people. We have disapproval for police officers when people get violated in the course of arrests. Take take the um take Eric Gardner, you know, the, the situation in New York. Eric Gardner needed to be arrested for breaking the law. I'm not sure Eric Gardner needed to die in the course of being arrested for breaking the law. Right, right. And so I think that we have to separate those things. And one of the first things I look at with that situation, once again, I'm not trying to play quarterback on Monday, but I had told Mr. Gardner, Mr. Gardner, because this wasn't his first rodeo, it wasn't the first time he'd ever been arrested. Hey, right now, sir, I have a warrant for your arrest, and I'm going to have to arrest you. We don't want to make this painful or confrontational, but right now, sir, I need you to turn and put your hands, you know, behind your, behind your back, over your head, whatever commands you want to give him. Because at some point, you have to affect the arrest. And, sir, if you don't comply, I'm going to tase you. So I want to make this as minimal, intrusive as possible, so we like your compliance. Now, if he chooses not to comply, guess what? I'm going to tase him. There's no reason for me to choke him. But when you have officers who are plain closed, who aren't in uniform, who don't have full duty belts, oftentimes they don't have access to all of the tools. So there was nothing stopping them from calling a uniformed officer to come to be part of effecting that arrest. And you tase him. If he doesn't comply, you tase him, you hook him up, and you take him to jail. But one of the first things about choking people is that you have to recognize when a person either starts to lose consciousness and a person can can go into a cardiac situation by by losing air, which which will put them to sleep, or by not being able to fill back up their lungs. When you got five or six people laying on top of somebody, it makes it really really hard for them to fill back up their lungs and to and to get that next breath. 
So somehow in the course of affecting arrest, we have to be able to recognize signs of distress because you have a duty of care when you take somebody and, and, you, and, and you choose to affect that arrest. You have a duty of care to make sure that they are secure and that they're provided for in the, in the transportation of the, in the execution and transportation of, the, of that arrest. <clears throat> Excuse me. Man, you're, you're coming straight out of the textbook. I mean, the use of force continuum, the arrest and detention laws, is straight, straight police work. But training is the first thing that gets cut, man, for a law enforcement officer and their budget. But, but when, we, when we make a decision to make the first things cut, is there training? Do we put law enforcement officers at risk and we put civilians at risk? <clears throat> totally. So, some, so sometimes we have to find ways to make sure that, we do, that we're doing that. Those are budgets that can never afford to get cut. Somebody better and hear once that again, we, ha- we have to separate. When somebody questions an action or wants to find out that we follow, is that the protocol? Because sometimes protocols need to be, need to mod- be modified, updated, and changed. So if an officer is following a bad protocol, how do we get the protocol changed so, that the, so we don't put these officers in these adverse situations? If the officer is not following protocol, then why did they choose not to follow protocol? When Tamar Rice was killed, I believe those officers didn't follow protocol. You're not going to tell me there's no protocol that says pull your squad car right next to the person who you suspect has a gun. That seemed like an absence of protocol. And while, while the, um, what Jeffrey Falmer, the um, Cleveland Police Patrol Union president, he was very adamant in talking about there was no liability, there was no fault on the part of the officers. And, and even in, the, and in his discussions, he was very adamant about somebody just lost their 12-year-old child. I know, right? We're not saying that the police officers woke up in the morning and decided they wanted to kill that 12-year-old child. But a parent lost a 12-year-old child. He showed no empathy for the families. He kept referring to the male suspect. He didn't want to say the 12-year-old kid that was killed. So he kept trying to change the narrative to lessen public sentiment towards a 12-year-old child just got killed. But he was killing that community policing. so, So once again, so that's how you destroy trust. Now, because you say, my heart goes out, to any family that loses a, who loses who loses a child, that doesn't say that you're not pro police, that you don't stand up for the officers that are part of your union, but you also have to show the public that there is a level of empathy involved in policing also. And if they didn't follow protocol, you need to be prepared to say we're looking at our protocols to make sure things were followed. We're looking at enhancing training to make sure officers don't find themselves in adverse situations. So those are all things that the public can then start to say, let's have some healing. Because there is an acknowledgement that maybe things could have been handled a little differently. It's no different than, 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 than in New York with the horrific situation with the two officers that were killed, Officer Lou and Officer, and Officer Ramos. But the New York PD union president, Patrick Lynch, makes wants to make this be the mayor's issue he's his comments are there's blood on on the hands and it starts at city hall no there's blood on the hands of the terrorists that executed the two officers the mayor had nothing to do with that 
but because you say that the mayor sympathizes with protesters, well, the mayor has a responsibility to all the citizens of New York, not just the NYPD. But since the citizens, since the NYPD officers are New York citizens first, if you protect the process of the citizens by default, you protect the process of the police officers. So it's, it's not an adversarial situation. So when, when he says things like that or he makes comments that we're at war, we're at war with whom? Yeah, that's just wrong. So that's where you start to say that's where the distrust is lost with the communities. It's not because of the mayor. And when you ask officers to turn their back on the mayor, when he's, when he's speaking or presiding, not only is that disrespectful, it's insubordinate. So this is, where, this is what causes trust to break down. What causes trust to break down are things like stop and frisk, where 88% of stop and frisks don't result in arrest, and only 2% of stop and frisk situations contraband is found, and only 1% of weapon is found. That so, policy's old. So why are we still doing stop and frisk? I know. Why did, a, why did 169,000 people get stopped in 2013? That's what causes public trust to erode. And that puts all officers at risk. True that, true that. And it's not because people are anti-police, it's because people are frustrated with outdated paradigms which don't serve the communities. They're frustrated when officers have no connections with the communities. That's where the distress is lost. So all of the great officers who wake up every morning and put on that blue and grab that badge and do nothing but an outstanding job in servicing their communities, all that gets wiped away by a couple of bad apples. And I would say fish rot from the head. So if you have a president who preaches rhetoric and doesn't look at objective issues and how do we find ways to enhance the safety of the officers, then it doesn't set the situation up to have a trusting relationship between the police and the communities. Love it. But, but somehow people have misinterpreted that any time that somebody challenges something that a police officer does, that it's automatically cop-hate. It's not cop-hate, it's cop-love. I had three uncles who were police officers. To an to an NYPD, so I got nothing but love for the police. I trained a ton of police officers, but I also recognize when people are putting themselves in adverse situations, which puts the public at risk. You know that we have to find a way that that something other than civilian discomfort doesn't trigger deadly force. Right. When we look at the John Crawford situation, that's the young man that was that was killed in that was killed in Walmart. Oh, by the way, happened to be in Ohio. Here we have a gentleman who flat out fabricated that this young man was walking down there pointing a gun and loading it in Walmart. When you look at the videotape, he did none of that. So what you basically had was somebody who was swatted. So you had you had a bogus call made about a, a man pointing a, a, pointing a firearm and loading it. 
and he's walking around with a BB gun. There was an unpackaged BB gun that was that was in that was in Walmart. But once again, here you got a situation where officers put themselves in a tactically disadvantaged situation. The man complies. The man drops the gun. He puts it down. He gets on the ground. Something spooks him. He jumps back, and officers turn around and shoot him. Why? Because they got so close to him. You couldn't verify what his intentions were. Had you maintained distance and, and utilized some cover, concealment, still given the commands, if he then reached and went to pick up a weapon, you'd have had a chance to activate any countermeasures, shoot him if, if that was what you decided needed to happen. But if, when you find yourself so close to the suspect that you're almost at contact distance, it makes it really hard to understand what a person's intentions are. So once again, why do we approach without compliance? Because when we approach without compliance and we're not sure of the actions, we have to exaggerate ours in order to get back in front of the power curve, which codename somebody gets severely injured or dies. And not only did this young man die, another woman had a heart attack because of all the excitement and she died. Wow. You dropped so some serious he, science on us today. So these are the challenges that cause people to feel uncomfortable with the current state of the way some officers are doing policing, with the way some police union presidents almost make it be, in order to be pro-union, you have to be anti-public. And I know that's not their intentions, but sometimes that's the way the communication comes across. As a police officer, it's your job to give me clear communication of what you want me to do. If a person is not trained in combatives, if a person is not trained in firearms, they don't know I need to move very, very slowly. They don't know to keep their hands in plain view. They don't know once I'm out of the car, going back towards the car makes an officer feel uncomfortable. So you have to be very clear as a responding officer, no different than a civilian who has a bad man in your house. You need to be very clear on what you want them to do. Let's talk about that. A lot of people are concealed carry holders. A lot of people um, believe in the right to carry and they're definitely carrying in their home. But there is some, some verbiage that needs to be explained as well for those who have the misfortune of having to uh, pull a firearm on somebody in their home. Well, I, I, I'm always really, really clear. If I have to give you commands, I'm very, I'm very direct. I speak very slow. I, I speak very clearly. You don't need to die today, but you need to comply. And so the way you communicate things to people, the way you index your weapon on somebody might be the difference between whether you have to actually pull the trigger or not. And so many people get their firearms training from television. True. So many people get their firearms training from YouTube videos where they have no context on what is happening. You know, everybody wants to become a keyboard ninja, and this is what I would do in this situation. Well, if my, you know, there's a bad guy downstairs, well, I'm going to go clear my house. Well, if all your bedrooms are upstairs, if you protect the top of the stairs, you protect your family. So why do you need to go downstairs? If the bad man's outside, why are you going outside? Lock the door, call 911. Let the police do their job. Talk about it. 
but you know, but somehow we've become this this culture of we think we have to fix things, or because we watched a couple of YouTube videos, we think that we're we think that we're ready, or because you're uncomfortable with a firearm, you don't want me to own a firearm. I look at some of the I look at some of the proposed legislation that that comes on the heels of any time there's an active shooting in a school. Magazine capacities limits don't stop active shootings. You know, monsters start out as gremlins. The way you stop active shootings is recognize pre-incident indicators. The way you stop active shootings is is start to recognize a kid who's detached from the other kids in the classroom. The way you start to recognize active shootings is, is noticing the kid who's been bullied, noticing the kid who's now withdrawn, who's, who used to be, very, very conversational. That's where you start to notice things are things are different. You know, 70-plus percent of the active shooters are mentally challenged. You can't legislate men- mental health. You know, so when you start looking at wanting to make policy changes, but you don't understand the things that you want to make policy on, that's when you make bad policy. I can take a five-shot handgun revolver, about as restrictive a capacity as you can have. Give me four or five-shot revolvers and let me put them in my pocket, and nobody else has a gun. And I start shooting. I don't have a high-capacity weapon, but a lot of people are going to be severely injured and die. So capacity has nothing to do with intention. And we're trying to legislate intention. And the people who who do bad things don't don't follow rules don't follow the law anyway i know right so sometimes when you hear some of these suggestions you're like where did that come from so you want to tell me as a civilian i should be restricted on a seven or a ten shot magazine capacity weapon but if you look at when law enforcement officers discharge their weapon they often fire significantly more shots than that so is the threshold for life greater if you're law enforcement than a civilian Good question. I mean, last time you checked, I don't know how many criminals decided because you say you want to pass the magazine ban capacity that they're going to stop carrying high cap, you know, high capacity magazines. I mean, there's only millions and millions of them in circulation in America right now. So you banning them doesn't take them out of circulation. Yeah, we we know it's always just been a, a bunch of talk. And, and most of the stuff that happens is not even new. The uh, legislation is just repeated garbage from before. Every new politician tries to get their place in the sun by promising to stop something that they can't. Man, you've just. But if you if you look at if you look at you know what's what's the prototypical weapon when people want to start about 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 um, high capacity magazines and banning things and active shootings. The prototypical weapon you always see is what someone refers to as, a, as an assault rifle. Right. Assault rifles account for less than 2% of the murders in the U.S. But it's the sexy factor. It's the one that every politician wants to rally behind. So I'm not trying to have a, a Second Amendment conversation, but what I'm trying to have a conversation is, I don't care what policies you make, but make them based on logic. Make them based on objective criteria. Don't make them based on emotion, because when we make emotional decisions, we make bad decisions. Hey, and on that note, 
how can folks contact Mark James? Because you've just given us some good stuff, man, to think about for the next couple of days. Uh, info at pantherprotectionservices.com is the best way to contact me. Info at pantherprotectionservices.com. Mr. James, thank you so much, man, for being a guest. And I'm, I'm, I got a new friend, so I'm going to have to bug you a little, little bit more, man. No problem, Ken. Take care, man. Have a blessed day. Oh, you do the same. Peace. Peace. And now a word from our premier sponsor. Being an armed citizen means having a gun with you all the time. Carrying a firearm every day requires a holster that is both concealable and comfortable. Whether you choose our Super Tuck Deluxe or Mini Tuck, you'll have the confidence that comes from being discreetly and comfortably armed, prepared to face unforeseen dangers. Crossbreed holsters are handmade in the USA, come with a lifetime warranty and a two-week try-it-free guarantee. Order your holster today at crossbreedholsters.com. That's such a good response from my piece on the deacons of defense. And in the past, I've every, every once in a while I do uh, some American history. I want to bring up some people that you don't hear about. Well, this guy, a movie, I think is about to be uh, made on him. It's a Western. He's known as Isham Dart. He was born a slave in 1849 in Arkansas. Ned Huddleston, as he was known, got a reputation as a rider, a roper, a bronco buster, and a bad guy. He earned a nickname of the Black Fox and the Calico Cowboy. How cool is that? He was also a notorious Wyoming Territory outlaw. In 1861, the 12-year-old Huddleston accompanied his owner, a Confederate officer, into Texas during the Civil War. But after being freed at the end of the war, Huddleston headed for the southern Texas-Mexico border where he found work at a rodeo become a stunt rider and honed his skills as a master horseman. Huddleston straddled both sides of the law. For a time, he and a young Mexican bandit named Teresa survived as rustlers stealing horses in Mexico and selling them into Texas. Huddleston later joined a cattle drive heading northwest to Brown's Hole in the Colorado-Wyoming area around 1871. That Brown's Hole, you hear about it in the movies all the time. Who was there? Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, yeah. He was six foot two and found success for a little while, mining gold and silver back in the day. But he claimed his partner cheated him out of his earnings. And then after a tumultuous love affair with a Shoshone Indian in 1875, Huddleston joined the infamous Tip Galt Gang, a cattle and horse rustling outfit in southern Wyoming. But after narrowly escaping death, he went further west and started a new life as a hard-working man. He changed his name to Isham Dart and made a living as a Bronco Buster. Isham returned later to Brown's Hole around 1890 and had his own ranch, but local cattlemen suspected he had built up his ranch herd from cattle he'd rustled from their ranches. So they hired a notorious range detective, a guy by the name of Tom Horn. Horn ambushed and killed Dart October 3rd, 1900, near Brown's Hole. Public opinion and was and still continues to be divided about his guilt. Some Brown Holes residents mourned his death, claiming Dart was killed by cattlemen who wanted his land and cattle. They saw Dart as a good-hearted, talented horseman and a top bronc stomper. Others believe he never really gave up his life of crime, of cattle rustling, and deserved what he got. Want some more details? 
Well, he bought that ranch in 1890 and become deeply involved in the range wars in Moffat County, siding with the smaller ranchers like Ann Bassett, who was suspected of being a cattle rustler herself, against the larger two-bar ranch cattle company. And after a fellow rancher, Matt Nash, was found killed outside his home, Dart and other fellow ranchers received notes telling them to leave the area or face the same fate. Isham refused to leave, and on October 3rd, he was shot from behind and killed. Dart was 51. Sadly, his reputation of being a gentle, kind man who would help anyone, and reputation as being a horse whisperer in his own right, didn't save him from the fact that he was also a bad guy. Many of the unsubstantiated stories of his life have surfaced, with him having short careers as a gambler, a prospector, a horse trainer, a bronco buster, and all of them was his attempts to go straight. Although he was touted as one of the finest horsemen around, he never entered into a single rodeo competition. Dart is reputed to never have shot a man, even though on occasion he may have threatened a few. Instead, he relied on his horse and cattle skills for rustling and later as a rancher. According to other stories, Dart ran for and won the office of constable in Sweetwater County, Wyoming in 1884. He was defeated just a few years later, and this is when he returned to Moffat County in Colorado. And some stories even claim he was an acquaintance of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who were friends of the Bassetts, Dart's ranching neighbor and who often stayed at the Bassett Ranch. Regardless of the stories, he led a good life, an active life, a life that maybe you never heard of before. Until now, Isham Dart, American Cowboy. Isham was, bur- was buried in Root County near Browns Park in a corralled and marked grave along North Highway 72, and a grave can still be seen today among the trees. You can find it in Moffat County, Colorado. In the news. In the news. One of the cool things that's happening this week is that there is SHOT Show, the shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show out in Las Vegas. And almost all my podcasting buddies that are new media folks are out there having a good old time. Back here in Maryland, there is a new five-star indoor training center being built. A new range, believe it or not, called the Maryland Firearms Training Academy. It's um, going to be upscale, full-service retail place in Beltsville, Maryland. And it's going to have a shoot house and a whole bunch of modern stuff and made made in a time when you didn't think that stuff would happen anymore. But yes, there's a new range coming to Maryland. It's going to be where in Maryland? Beltsville? It's kind of off of um, Edmonston Road in Beltsville. And it's still working on construction. I hope to um, talk to one of the premier people next week on next week's show. It's expected to open early 2016. So we got a while, but it's... um. It's in process. It's in the cooker. How cool is that? I want to give a shout out to uh, my friend Crystal, who has a podcast that's fairly new called Bullet Talk Radio. Yeah, sister's doing it. Bullet Talk Radio. I want to give a quick shout out to womensoutdoornews.com. It's a spot. You got to go check that site out. It's always happening, always new, always got great stuff. Barbara Baird and Mia Anstein and a crew of really talented people are there. Womensoutdoornews.com. I want to give you some events that are coming down the pike. There is the podcast movement at Fort Worth, Texas, July 31st through August 2nd, if you are a podcaster. And you can find that at podcastmovement.com. And if you really want to get your mind blown, check out the New Media Expo 
in Las Vegas, April 13th through the 16th in Las Vegas, Nevada. And at the same time, there's going to be the NAB show. The National Association of Broadcasters are also having their event there, too. So new media has just crossed over into big media. For more information about that, go to nmxlive.com forward slash 2015. NMX Live. Check it out. If you are a podcaster, broadcaster, want to be one, you can learn a lot from the pros. And speaking of pros, here's some friends that are podcasting as well. An armed society is a polite society. And the Polite Society podcast supports and reports on civilian self-defense. We bring you news, interviews, and stories of defensive gun use twice a week. So, climb aboard, strap in, and hang on. Look for us on the web, because the next episode of the Polite Society podcast starts right now. Hello, listeners. This is Carrie Zoka, hostess of Carrie Z's Hunting and Outdoor Podcast, the only female-hosted hunting podcast in the world. I'd like to invite you to be a part of my wild world. Subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Carrie Z. No space. It'll come right up. Or listen at the website, thewildworldofcarriez.com. Until then, happy hunting. But wait, there's more. It's a break from convention. It's something different than you're used to. It's the Gun Blog Variety Cast, and I'm your host, Sean, from NC Gun Blog. Joined each week by Adam from Guns, Cars, Tech Blog, together we bring you some of the most interesting people from around the gun blogosphere. There's Aaron from Lurking Rhythmically, Nikki from the Liberty Zone, Miguel from Gun Free Zone, Aaron from the Minuteman, and Weird from Weird World. These are the people bringing the smart to you on GunBlogVarietyCast.com. Join us! If you are a member of the National Rifle Association and you get one of the American Rifleman publications, you probably will have noticed that there is a huge section this week or this month for the 2015 director nominations. And I want to give you an endorsement. If you are a voting person and you are going to the annual meeting this year, I want you to make sure you vote for Mr. Joseph P. DeBurglis Jr. from upstate New York. I think technically it's West Seneca, but he's a Buffalo State Police officer up there. And the dude is a dedicated NRA member, a dedicated friend of anybody who listens to this show. He is my brother. Um, he's been my friend for almost 20 years now. And the guy is solid. So if you're a friend of mine, you're a friend of Joe's. Look for his name, Joseph. Just call him Joe. Joe DeBurglis. And vote for him. He is one of my closest friends. I've known him probably, did I say 20 years? Yeah, easily 20 years. Solid guy. When you want something done, when you want to find out something that's going on, when you want the truth, I call Joe. And since he's my friend, he's your friend too. I can't remember when the last time I endorsed somebody on the board of directors. So I have to tell you something right there. Look for him in that ballot. Joe DeBurglis from West Seneca, New York, board of directors, NRA. And look for him at the next um, board meeting, the next event. The next NRA anything and tell them that Ken sent you. Hi, I want to invite you to consider supporting this podcast created especially for you with a monthly donation. Every little bit helps and with your support, our friend and brother from another mother can go on and grow this show even better. To pledge your support, go to patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun. Thank you. 
All right, last week I talked about BlanchardOutdoors.com. And if you go into the show notes for episode number 411, you will see a video I did today. Um, I had fun doing it. It was cold. BlanchardOutdoors.com. This is the end of the second week, and we have about a dozen supporters. Um, what's going to happen is Black Man with a Gun is actually evolving um, into this show. And I'm trying to get on real radio. Yeah, real radio with a once-a-week show. It's going to start off about an hour. might end up to be a couple hours. I got a professional talent coach actually working with me. I'm working on interviewing a co-host today, and she's going to be so fun to hang on. Um, There's just so much positive stuff coming out of this. It's going to be the show that talks about cooking and recipes and fishing and hunting and all the stuff, the how-tos from the experts, the people who enjoy the outdoors. It's going to be live streamed and we'll find a way to podcast it too, probably on the same channel. Um, Well, I'll see how it's going to work, but I need your help. I got to do this programming thing. Radio is not like uh, podcasting. You actually got to pay for the time, pay for the studio, pay for the programming. And I'm trying to get from out of the basement, under the washer and the dryer, to the big leagues. Because this is like step two. Podcasting, radio, television. Yeah, this show is going to be on television someday. And I'm going to be real loyal to everybody who pays attention to me, who talks to me, who helps me, who supports me. And I know you. If you've been a part of the Patreon family, you're already family members. I'm looking for more. I need a few dollars to get there. Check out that site. Check out Blanchard Outdoors. Look for the link. Think about it. Pray about it. If you can help, I need it. All right? It's going to be a good time. I don't want you to miss me. Okay? Cool. Socrates said, The secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. All right, this concludes another week of us being together. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me at blackmanwiththegun.com and all my sites on blanchardmediagroup.com. Until next week, shalom, baby.